box. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull with you on FBI Radio 94.5, streaming online or via the podcast. This show is Out of the Box. Every Thursday, I get to sit down with one person and take a deep dive into their record collection and the stories that come with it. And before I go any further, I'd like to acknowledge that right now we are broadcasting on the stolen Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. I'm coming to you from FBI's studio in Redfern, and my guest is joining me from their home. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I'm joined by Shane Janik, who you might know as Courtney Act. Shane came 13th on the first season of Australian Idol and has been able to parlay that into a career with huge triumphs in Australia and around the world. Shane is a drag queen, TV personality, singer, dancer and now author with their memoir Caught in the Act hitting shelves this past week. It's a big read because Shane has a big story and I'm so grateful that they're here to share it as well as share some of the songs that have soundtracked the big moments. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here. You are so welcome. Uh, Throughout the show, I want to look at the roles that both Courtney and Shane have played in your life and the memories that you've made with each of them. But first, I think we need to understand how these two interact with each other and, you know, where you fit between them. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. It's been a lifelong process working it out (laughs) for myself. And I think this book was a big part of understanding that. Courtney and Shane are sort of like two ends of the same stick, I think, because I look different, I have a different name, I'm perceived to be a different gender. Often people think that Courtney and Shane are two different people, but really it's me just in different clothes. And I think in a way, because I'm presenting as a different gender, it seems like I've traveled a very long way to to be Courtney Act. But really, if you think about like, I don't know, like Kylie Jenner, I think I probably spend less time going from fresh out of the shower Kylie Jenner to, you know, Instagram ready Kylie Jenner in a weird (laughs) way. Um, And for me, it's just a a way of dressing up. Courtney is a, a way of being a part of myself, like as if someone were to go to work or go to the gym or go and have lunch with their parents. They might wear different things. And that's kind of what Courtney is to me. It's just that Courtney has a different name and a different pronoun. And in a weird way, I kind of wish that I didn't have a drag name. But throughout my life, Courtney was important because I had to compartmentalize those two facets of myself because when I was younger, there wasn't a place for me to be a boy who was feminine. And... It was only around 2014, so not that long ago, where I finally became comfortable with the idea that it was okay for boys to be feminine and girls to be masculine. Despite having done drag all my life, it was always like, girls, girl on one side, boy on the other, and never the twain shall meet. So now I've, I realize that the internal sense of I uh, that has been consistent my entire life is still the same, um, but at different parts I used, I guess, Courtney was like a a device or a tool. Um, But now, actually, I intellectualized uh, Courtney as like being other, but actually, like, I am 
all of those parts of me. And Courtney is my expression of femininity. Um, and I love dressing in drag. I love performing. I love dressing feminine and, and being feminine and acting feminine. And I think that, um, yeah, where I'm at now is is somewhere acknowledging that who I am is somewhere closer to the middle, I guess, on the gender spectrum and um, that all of those parts of me. So let's talk about the book because while it's a memoir and speaks to your experiences as a queer person growing up in Australia, I think it kind of speaks to that experience in general and the experience of gender fluidity in general. Mm. Who did you write it for, Shane? I think I wrote it for my 14-year-old self because, well, <laughs> oh, this might sound obvious, but uh, if you were 14 and someone handed you a book that you wrote when you were near 40 and was like, hey, here's all the answers, yeah, <laughs> maybe that wouldn't work. But I guess it contains the information that I wish I didn't have to discover by trial and error over the course of my life. I wish that there had been more representation on television and film and in society around me. I wish there had been more conversations about gender and sexuality in school. I wish that there'd been TV characters and even to the point where we are now in 2021, we saw a lot we see a lot more queer visibility in pop culture, but it's often still exceptional. And it's not even though that you can see queer people in the mainstream. I mean, I, I, a show like RuPaul's Drag Race is obviously great representation, but it's still on a cable TV network or a stream. It's not on your Channel 7, your Channel 9, your Channel 10 kind of thing. And it's limited to find accurate and positive and diverse representation on Australian television, period, not just for queer people. Um, so, yeah, I just, I think I wrote it for that, that 14-year-old kid who was a little bit or a lot bit confused about how they related to the world and why they didn't see themselves reflected back in any anything they saw. And the book, the writing of the book, I guess unintentionally, uh, is was sort of like deep childhood regression therapy because you go back and you're writing about these childhood experiences which you may have retold cute stories from your childhood before to friends but like with bullet points and they become almost uh these sort of reductive versions of the truth for for like sensationalism or for impact or whatever oh let me tell you about the time that and when you're writing it down when you're trying to tell your story in in real depth and really connect to that moment um it's amazing what happens because there's so much more than the the top line memory that is saved in your mind about your past and when you go back and you start trying to describe the detail when you remember say you know the wooden bench that you sat on at school and the concrete ground and and the color of your uniform and the cotton and the way that it felt and and I was going to say your backpack, but I actually had a, whe- a wheelie bag <laughs> that I carried around school. And when I thought about my pencil case and the types of pens that I liked using in my books and how I covered them and what the classroom was and the smell of the classroom and the carpet, that brown carpet. Sorry, I'm now having a sense overload. <laughs> when, you, when you start writing about those things or thinking about them to describe them uh, in a book, you get connected with that moment in a way that, for me, I never had before. Apart from living the moment the first time, I had never so deeply connected with 
those moments that were so formative. It's a weird sort of concept, but I and impacted the rest of my life. And when you go back now with an adult mind um, and a, a wiser mind, you're able to repackage so many of those things in a way that you weren't at the time. A lot of those things are either saved as trauma or just incomplete um, or child observations of life. And so, yeah, getting to go back and do it, it's, again, in therapy. This is a big therapy session. I'm so happy you feel comfortable doing therapy with me, Courtney. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Honestly, even if you're not writing a memoir for people to read, going back and journaling a lot of those experiences can be and not just the heartbreaking ones, even my first kiss with a boy, going back and writing about that, I thought that was a fun and exciting Mm. time. I didn't realize there was any sort of trauma saved with that. And when I was writing about it, I just broke down in tears because I realized it wasn't just an exciting first kiss with a boy. It was the 18 years that had led up to that point and the confusion and um, the not knowing and the shame. And so that, that kiss represented so much more than just that. And to go back and examine that, I just felt, the, the tears were so healing. It was such a exciting um, process to go through. Mm. And yeah, I do, I do want to circle back to the story of that kiss later as well. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, your book Caught in the Act, it's a memoir, obviously littered with personal anecdotes written for your 14-year-old self or any 14-year-old who might be questioning this side of themselves. Although if you're 14, this book's probably <laughs> a little bit too racy. It's a little bit but explicit it, yeah, in parts. For any queer people and for any non-queer people, it's just, you know, I think the point of memoir and the point of storytelling is to tell stories, to tell different stories, to tell more than one story because for so long we have really only heard one type of story and so I think in storytelling hearing someone else's story that fosters empathy and understanding well that's just it isn't it there's something really special about you know reading someone's personal experience and understanding what they've been through and if that isn't enough to foster empathy and understanding you've found another way to initiate understanding in the book it's dotted with these interludes called Courtney facts they're little gray text boxes on the pages that explain in detail the concepts and terms that you bring up about gender and sexuality is that information just from your noggin or was there a bit of research involved in writing the book the one about gluing down eyebrows I was able to personally write without consulting anybody else but the (laughs) more in-depth ones about um, intersex identity and trans identities and uh, and non-binary identities I wanted to make sure that I had a broader range of opinions than just my own I read lots of different books uh, spoke to some experts, spoke to people with lived experiences and tried to check as much as like as much as one can that I was being as inclusive and as accurate in my descriptions. But, you know, some of them I know are going to be wrong, but I hope that most people reading this book, what I was thinking is that most people reading this book probably won't be as familiar with the nuances of the queer community as perhaps I am or as perhaps I wanted to be in the descriptions and I just wanted to make sure everyone was on the same page Mm. so I literally on the page wrote out a glossary as the book was going rather than flipping to the back I just wanted to include them in the moment so people could understand different terms Um, and look there's a lot more terms as we know in the queer community than just the ones I've defined but even simple things like 
you know, pansexual, um, non-binary identity, they, them pronouns. These are concepts that might sound very familiar to some listeners, but for other listeners, maybe A, don't know what that means at all, or B, have heard it, but are just a bit confused, too afraid to ask, not quite sure where to Google. And this book, I have hopefully answered those questions. So a super accessible story, no matter where you sit on the gender spectrum. And if you did want to read it, I'll put a link to it up on the program's page on fbiradio.com. It is Caught in the Act by Courtney Act, a memoir. Shane, for the first part of the show, we've been talking about nuance and grey area and, you know, where you sit between Courtney Act and Shane Jenick. And while we'll stay in that grey area for the rest of the show, I do want to explore some of the more colourful stories from your life. But first, you've chosen a song by Diana Ross to play on Out of the Box. Tell me about this one. This song I've chosen because it sums up almost that feeling of the inner child. It's that place you want to get to. It's that place where you feel safe and comfortable and as whole as one can. Um, and it's just a beautiful song and it, it's where I feel like I've gotten to through the process of writing this book. Um, and I think that's a nice thing. And I think the reason that I feel that is because when you're finally able to cast off all of the external ideas about who you should be and what you're supposed to be and how you should dress and who you're supposed to love, you get to a place that is home. And that's why I chose this song by Diana Ross. The song is called Home by Diana Ross. Suddenly my world's gone and changed its face, but I still know where I'm going. I've had my mind spun around in space And yet I've watched it grow And if you're listening, God, please don't make it hard To know if we should believe the things that we see It was Diana Ross on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Home and you heard it right here on Out of the Box. My guest on the show today is Shane Jenick, who you might know as Courtney Act. They referred to that song as one that reminds them of their inner child. So let's go back to your childhood. It begins in Brisbane. Can you paint a picture of what that looked like? I can. Brisbane in the 80s, um, overarching feelings of warmth and love from mum and dad, that environment that was created at home, um, so supportive, so loving and unconditional. And it's interesting because I acknowledge that that's a great privilege that many queer kids don't have that. Um, And I've been talking about the book of my journey lately and a few people have said, but your parents were so supportive and loving, like, how how could you struggle, you know, with your queer identity if your parents loved you? And I think the answer is, you know, if you can't see yourself, you can't be yourself. So despite that unconditional love of my parents, there was still an absence of a reflection of who I was out there in the world. And we're tribal humans. We look for social confirmation to ensure that we're on the right path. And when you don't see other boys who are attracted to boys or other boys acting femininely, when you only see one type of masculinity, one type of femininity, one type of sexuality, 
you and you feel differently on the inside it begins to raise questions in yourself like oh am i right am i okay am i wrong i should keep this to myself and so around sort of puberty there was a bit of a a bit of bubbling of shame that i'm sure a lot of queer people and a lot of people in general can identify with that that feeling of not fitting in or wondering why um but then i found a place uh called the fame talent agency and theater company in brisbane which was sort of like a singing and dancing and acting school that i would go to it was only one day a week after school but then on the school holidays um i would be in pantomimes that uh we would do at the the theater at fame or like in like westfield shopping centers across brisbane um, and it was just a real place where I could be myself. There was still no language or context for what being queer or any of, anything about gender or sexuality. It was just like this was a place where you could be yourself, where there was no imposition on being masculine or trying to play football or whatever. I was just able to like prance and skip and sing and dance and be myself. And it was a real like sanctuary where between the love at home and the self-expression at fame that was foundation enough for me to thrive I think as a kid um, despite those underlying and low lum- low lying rumbles of of shame from um, lack of representation so you found sanctuary in the fame talent agency theater company was that where you discovered your love for performing or did that come earlier in your life when I was Five, mum entered me in a, I don't even know, calling it a beauty pageant sounds a bit random because my mum wasn't like, when I think of like those American shows of like child beauty, that wasn't my life and that wasn't my mum. Yeah. It was just like this competition called Mr. Tiny Tot. Um, or the t- It was called the Tiny Tot competition. There was a Mr. Tiny Tot and a Miss Tiny Tot. And I won Mr. Tiny Tot 1987. And I remember. Oh my God, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I remember that feeling of, um, I guess that feeling of like being celebrated. I remember the feeling like I had to talk to like a panel and I was on stage and different things like that. And maybe that was like my first taste of um, that sort of social public adulation. Um, but then I think performing just happened around the house. Like, and I think that's why mum entered me into it. Cause I just was always like around the house performing and being a bit of a, a showman. And mm. she was like, oh, this looks like fun. Do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then I went along to, um, some other singing and dancing lessons and that, that place, um, closed down. And yeah, then we went along to fame when I was about, oh, I worked out all the actual dates when I was writing the book, but now I actually can't remember. So if I if this well, I guess if we want the hard dates, we'll just have yeah to go, go to the book, get the book. Then but it was around six or seven. So your mum's <laughs> super encouraging of these big dreams of being a performer from a very young age. Shane, what kind of parents did you have? You've described them as you know having all this unconditional love for you. Were, were they performers as well? Were they very creative people? No, not really. Um, Mum was a beauty therapist when I was younger. Dad is a naturopath and acupuncturist, um, which, you know, kind of sounds like a normal job now. But in Brisbane in the 80s, having a dad who was a naturopath and acupuncturist and Chinese herbalist was 
like pretty out of the box. It wasn't for me, obviously, because he was my dad, but um, they were they were sort of business people, small business owners, always working really hard, um, working a lot, working till, you know, 8 or 9 p.m. most nights. But the interesting thing is I never felt like they weren't there. There was always a real mm. sense of family and a sense of love. Um, but, I mean, Dad, Dad had a guitar and would, like, occasionally try to play it after a few beers but <laughs> otherwise not so not not much sort of performance background there it was just something that I I don't know I think it was in inherent because it happened before I even have memory of mm. it mum was just like you just always used to love running around the house singing and dancing and performing and it just seemed like something that was you and so she asked if I wanted to go along to lessons and I just so instantly connected with it mm. So you've described the Fame Talent Agency and Theatre Company as a haven as well as your home. What was school like for you? School was different at different times. In primary school, it was fun. We were all just kids. Um, There wasn't in the beginning a huge delineation between gender. But uh, at about grade four, I remember encountering my first alpha male teacher. Um, Mm. and I, it was at that point that I started to learn that I wasn't doing something right, that all the other boys were acting one way and I was acting another and I was acting more like the girls and that wasn't okay. So that was sort of like a, when you say acting more like the girls, what do you mean by that? Well, I, there's just more feminine. I was like, I remember my uncle being like. Shane, stop walking on your tiptoes like a fairy. And <laughs> it was those sorts of things that I was just being me, you know. I, was, I wasn't I was trying to walk on my tiptoes like a fairy. I just would flutter about on my tiptoes and um, and those sorts of things. I loved, like, playing jump rope, skipping rope with the girls at lunchtime and hopscotch. Those things I was just naturally drawn to as a young like eight-year-old like that's just what I loved and in that context according to this male sort of alpha male teacher that wasn't okay so there was yeah there was some disruption that then I in grade six I went to a private school mum and dad um, wanted me to have a quality private school education for high school so they sent me along to St Paul's um, school in Bald Hills in grade six so that I could settle in and get acquainted with the setup. Um, and I just really quickly hated it. <laughs> it was, I don't know, it wasn't, a, wasn't a nice environment to be a young queer kid. It was a co-ed school, but it was the first year that it had been co-ed. So there was a real masculine overarching theme. The students, I got bullied a lot. The teachers were apathetic to that. And I just hated it. Uh, And I begged mum and dad to let me go back to public school. And they eventually conceded in grade eight, I got to go to Sangate District State High School, where all of my friends from primary school would be going. And it wasn't the exact return to utopia that I had dreamed it to be, but it was certainly a reprieve from um, that private Anglican school education. And look, I'd say that... um, the religion aspect probably had a lot to do with mm. it. Being a queer kid, you know, it's 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 usually pretty uh, diametrically opposed to 
strong religion in most cases. Um, and yeah, high school was was okay. It was pretty okay. I had fame. I knew what I loved and I knew what I liked. And I liked the Spice Girls and I connected with, you know, a group of girls at school and we all sat together and that was nice. There was still all of that not fitting in as a boy and all of the... There was a lot of... I always felt like the boys as a collective... Um, well, I didn't, I didn't belong to them and I didn't belong to the girls and I always felt like the boys cared more about the fact that I wasn't being one of them. Um, so there was that sort of struggle. And then, of course, like having crushes. Mm. I had crushes on girls, but I had crushes on boys and those crushes on boys could never be requited because the boys that I had crushes on were ostensibly straight. I'm sure they're not all straight, but <laughs> ostensibly they were straight. And... But you did have a girlfriend in high school, didn't you, Shane? I did. I had a couple. <laughs> and that that suited me because it wasn't, I think, some um, young gay men uh, might have girlfriends and sort of know that it's a charade. Whereas for me, I had genuine attraction and interest. And, um, and I think because of that, that was that got me through enough. I, it was acknowledging maybe less than half of my sexuality but at least it was acknowledging my sexuality in some honest way uh i think mm. for more sort of exclusively homosexual kids the idea of dating someone of the opposite gender is like a, a betrayal whereas for me it wasn't i was like oh yeah i like this girl i like girls um this is fine mm. but i also like boys but that's not fine and that's not okay. So let's not talk about that right now. Sort of was going on in my head. And it wasn't until yeah. later when I was 18 where I had more positive examples of same-sex relationships that I was like, oh, this is this this makes sense. This mm. makes sense. And still today I acknowledge like my the fluidity of my sexuality. I'm not exclusively homosexual. I'm also not trying to like pretend that I'm not really, really gay. I am really, really gay, but my... Um, but my sexuality does manifest differently. I, I identify as pansexual. I have attractions to people of different genders and have sexual experiences with, you know, cis women, trans people, cis men, people all along the spectrum. Mm. And, yeah, in the, in the next part of the show I want to talk about what it meant for you to turn 18 and have more solid examples of sexuality and gender. Uh, but first, let's play a song. What's yeah. the next one you've chosen for today? This song was almost like the national anthem of fame. Um, at the end of each recital, we called them club days, uh, we would sing this song. And it is the namesake of the fame agency. It's from the musical of the same name and it is Fame by Irina Carr. That 
was Irina Carr on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Fame and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Shane Janik, otherwise known as Courtney Act. Shane, we're taking a little walk through the story of your life, which has been dotted with so many things from drag and other performance to reality TV to presenting and, yes, now publishing a book. We're also taking a wander through some of the songs, like the one we've just played, that have soundtracked the big moments. I want to jump to another big moment in your life. It's in the year 2000. It marked your move to Sydney and a bunch of other changes. What brought you here? I went to Sydney because I wanted to go to the NIDA Open Day because I wanted to go to the National Institute of Dramatic Arts to study acting. And then I was meant to go to Perth to go to the Open Day for WAPA, the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts. I didn't make it to either of those but I did make it to the Stonewall Hotel and other parts of my life became far more important than a tertiary education. And I, yeah, I, I, I went to Stonewall. My friend Stephanie, who I went to fame with, um, took me to Stonewall against my better judgment. I was resistant to the idea of going to a gay bar because um, I was still in denial about my sexuality because I never had any positive examples of that. For me... Uh, gay was just poofter and faggot you know the names that you were called in the in the schoolyard and none of them were positive and none of them were things that I wanted to be clearly because they sounded so horrible but who I was on the inside didn't feel horrible so I never attached those meanings to who I was or at least disassociated in I think what was a healthy way at the time but then when I got to Sydney and I walked into Stonewall um it all made sense whereas before in brisbane i remember going to city rowers which was the official nightclub of the queensland reds football rugby i don't know it, it was it was a mm. not around football the other shape football <laughs> yeah. i think it's yeah. rugby. i think it was rugby um and there i was like one boy in a group of girls and I, everyone was drinking Bundaberg rum and Coke and I was drinking vodka and orange. Just inherently knew that Bundaberg rum and Coke wasn't for me. Um, and then I got to Sydney and I was on the dance floor. It, the, the vibe was so much fun. There was one girl dancing in a group of boys. People were wearing colourful clothes. The music was like pop music that I loved. And it just all started to make sense. I was like, oh, this is what gay is. Not that thing that I had been told in the schoolyard. This is what gays. These are. This is a gay lived experience you are having right now. And um, yeah, I just kind of fell in love with that and being able to express myself, however that felt, without the fear of like being called names. Let's hone in on a specific part of that gay lived experience. You referred to it a little bit earlier in the show, but it's this kiss that you shared at Stonewall. Tell me that story. It was that night, the very first night. Um, I moved very quickly back then. I was making up for lost time. We were dancing on the third <laughs> level um, and a boy came up and started like dancing against me. And it was my first sexual contact with another male of the species. <laughs> um, and I remember like feeling that excitement and that like, oh gosh, oh gosh, oh gosh. And then also quickly the shame creep in and being like, uh-oh, like 
don't let anybody, don't let your friends see this. I mean, my friends are the one who took me to the gay bar, but still the shame prevails. And I sort of whispered like, follow me downstairs. And we went down to the second level of Stonewall and I sat down and we started making out my first kiss with a boy. And there was something in that kiss that it was different. It was all of that past 18 years of confusion being actualized and affirmed instead of shamed. It was like that that kiss, that, that, that connection, that present moment, the sensation of like lips on lips and the, the, the hormones and the chemicals running through my body. It was just such a exciting and thrilling moment. And it's funny because um, at that moment it was happy. And as I've told the story for years and years and years, it was happy. And when I've told the story and, I, and the memory, it's a happy, it's an exciting moment. And it's funny because when I was writing about it in the book, when you actually take yourself back to describe all of the details of the situation and, you know, the cigarette punctured leather couch that I was sitting on and the lights and the music and sitting by the window and all, think about it and all of those things, I started crying because I realized that um, it was a happy moment. And it was a moment of, I guess, emancipation from the 18 years of confusion that had come before it. And so it was such a such a healing moment to really go back and write about that and understand it now with a wiser mind. And um, yeah, it was, I don't know, it really took me by surprise because I was like, oh, it was your first kiss. How sweet. But there's so much more to it than that. There was everything that led up to that moment. After my first kiss, later that night, I lost my virginity to a boy uh, to a different boy. I was moving fast. Making up for lost time, Shane. <laughs> yeah. Another key aspect of this kiss at Stonewall and one that you talk about in the book is actually the moment that your friends came downstairs to tell you that they were leaving the club. Yeah. Why was that moment so impactful? As I was making out with this boy, um, my friend Stephanie, I guess I'd been gone for a while, and my friend Stephanie tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around in like a dog about to be hit by a rolled up newspaper because I thought what I was doing was wrong. In the moment of doing it, it wasn't intellectual. It was just instinctual. But when I was confronted with my friend, then my mind started racing about, uh oh, mm. I've kissed a boy. You're not meant to kiss boys. This is wrong. What's she going to say? And she said that they were going home soon and did I want to come? And I said, yes, if that's still okay, because I thought maybe she's going to tell me I'm disgusting and I can't stay at a house anymore, which obviously, like, read the signs, Shane. (laughs) She took you to the gay bar. Uh, But still, that's how deep it runs. Um, And I said, yeah, I'd still like to come home because I didn't know where she lived. I was in a big city, Sydney. We didn't have... Google Maps or anything like that back then. And then she leaned in and she was like, was that your first kiss with the boy? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and she said, congratulations. And I was like, what? This is okay? This is to be celebrated? And it was it was such an amazing moment to have that first, um, first experience affirmed like that. Mm. Um, I think about all of the young queer kids whose 
sexuality isn't affirmed in a positive way the first time they have an experience like you know their parent finds out and they shame them or you know whatever happens and I'm just so grateful I'm always grateful to Stephanie for affirming me and my sexuality and that kiss with a boy in that first moment. It's really interesting that you bring that up because I feel like that's been a theme a couple of times in your life where you know these affirmations from third parties and this external validation has played a really big role in you understanding your sexuality and your gender. It happened again with Chaz Bono after Drag Race. Why do you think that is? I think it's because we grow up in a world that tells us that we need to people please. We need to be what other people expect of us. As kids, and this wasn't, you know, the this wasn't the messaging from my parents specifically. I think it's messaging from the world at large that you're meant to be a certain way. And if you're not, then you better work out how. For women, there's beauty expectations. For men, there's beauty expectations. There's expectations on how we act, who we date, what kind of food we eat. We disconnect from who we really are and we try and be these people that we're told that we should be. Um, I also think a lot of that comes from religion um, and this patriarchal society that we live in. And so those outside affirmations, it's unfortunate in a weird way. I, and I said I had such supportive parents and I wish a part of me could have just been content with who I was. I, if, I wish I could have known that who I was was more than enough. But in some other weird way, when you get to, well, not the end, hopefully I'm not at the end. Hopefully there's, hopefully I'm not even halfway there yet. But when you get further on and you're able to look back in this really weird way, you realize that the not knowing and the having to find who you are in a world that had no examples for you becomes the greatest success story because I now do understand who I am independent of a world that would tell me otherwise. And and those little affirmations are important um, because that's just kind of, I think, how we've been programmed. It could be how we're wired. It could be how we're wired and it could be and it could be how we're programmed and and but I think that um yeah it's I sometimes feel daft so many points in the story like winning celebrity big brother I feel like the moral of the whole book is um all you need to do to be happy is go on a competition reality show and win and be celebrated yeah. celebrated by a nation and then you'll be happy guys validation. then you'll be validated yeah, that's- <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I, I guess this experience at the stone wall you could almost call a, a type of gay awakening at, at this point in your life where was courtney act was she an idea yet not yet well She'd popped up a few times. She wasn't called Courtney, but I had had a few sort of incidents of drag in my childhood. But then I also had incidences of interspecial costume performance, dressing up as a mouse <laughs> in a pantomime at fame. So when it came time to dress up as a different gender, it didn't really seem like that much distance to travel. Um, but the turn of the millennium, mm. the year 2000, um, after falling in love with all of the drag queens on the Sydney scene, I decided to try drag for myself in Melbourne on a New Year's Eve party. And it was, again, this wonderful celebration of femininity. I was finally able to just walk on my tiptoes like a fairy all night long, aided <laughs> aided by five-inch heels. So 
Um, yeah, I, I, it was the time that I connected with femininity and I found a place where it was okay to be feminine as a boy. That was drag. And I also found a place where I could express the performance part of me. I'd been in Sydney and wanting to be a performer, but just never finding any opportunities. And here I was able to dress up in women's clothes, spin around, be feminine, be fabulous, wear sequins and get paid for it. How was Courtney born? Where did she come from? Um, it, was that, it was just that New Year's Eve party. It was like, okay... We're gonna do. I'm gonna do drag on New Year's Eve, and went to a you know Napoleon makeup counter on Turak Road and got my face done. Bought a wig from some wig shop. Um, the name Courtney Act itself. Uh, my my well now best friend at the time, Vanity Fair was a drag queen on the Sydney scene who I admired, um, and had met, and I asked her out for lunch and. I told her that I was planning doing drag, which, you know, these days planning doing drag, like every, I'm sure there's drag queens born every 12 minutes now in the world. But back then it wasn't as common. There was a very finite number of drag queens on the Sydney scene. People didn't really just do drag, maybe for a Mardi Gras, maybe for Halloween. And um, so we sat down, we had lunch and we were talking about drag names and she was, I wanted to be called Ginger Lebon. Uh, and she said that I needed to... <laughs> have a name that was a bit cuter and girlier like Courtney and I was like Courtney Courtney and then I said it slowly trying to find some hidden meaning in the word because so many drag names are double entendres in Sydney in that era and I said it slowly Courtney caught in the caught in the act that was my name, Courtney Act. And it's the title of my memoir, just in case people hadn't worked that out already. Amazing. And, yeah, for the rest of the show, I want to talk about the successes that you've had as Courtney Act. But first you've chosen a song by Garbage. Yeah. Why did you pick this one? This song, Cherry Lips by Garbage, was one of the songs that I performed uh, when I first started doing drag. And you know what's funny? I didn't know that this song was actually garbage wrote this song about um jt leroy jt leroy uh was an author um it was this whole huge literary scandal but the the bullet points are that garbage and people like andy warhol and many other people believed that jt leroy was a young um uh queer person who transitioned um from assigned male at birth transitioned to being a woman and it was this whole literary scandal because it turned out that it wasn't this wasn't the person that it was actually some older lady who was writing the whole story anyway it was a big scam big scandal didn't know that at the time at the time i just kind of really liked the song so it's funny that there was like a whole gender twist and gender play in the lyrics of this story i wasn't aware of and i used to perform it basically every friday night at the stonewall hotel and i got to perform it at the sydney the diva awards the drag industry variety awards when i won diva rising star oh, we're right behind you. Go.
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the website or the podcast, that song was called Cherry Lips. It was by Garbage, and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Shane Janik, who you might know through the moniker Courtney Act, thankfully named Courtney Act, and not Ginger Bon. <laughs> Shane, in your book, you say something to the effect of, in order to make it in Australia, you first have to make it overseas, and you would eventually make it overseas. So I want to talk about your move to LA. But before you did move there, what was your life looking like in Sydney? At that time, I was working as a drag queen uh, at Disgraceland, which was a club that my friend Tim Duggan and I ran on Oxford Street at a club called Nevermind. And it was a really fun and exciting time. Um, But then I got booked on a bunch of Atlantis uh, cruises, like this sort of gay cruise company, and was doing shows on there and, and um, had some. I was doing a couple of cruises in Europe and then one in the Caribbean, and there was a gap of time in between. And I went to LA um, and got some gigs and did some gigs around the place and kind of, for the first time, fell in love with the US. I never thought that I wanted to live there, um, but once I was there, I just got beguiled by Tinseltown and the opportunity and how big it was and there were so many cities and so many clubs and so many places that I could do that I could be me in Australia there was you know Brisbane Sydney Melbourne occasionally Perth you could do those gigs once a year and and that was about it but in the US I did a tour of like 10 or so dates of all of these cities like Cleveland and Columbus and McAllen Texas and Mobile Alabama um, which were by no means you know the big glamorous uh, cities, but it was just exciting to me that there was all of these places to perform and so much opportunity. I think a big part of your time in the US as well was appearing on season six of RuPaul's Drag Race. What did that experience mean for you? That was such an exciting time because Drag Race has become and was then such a cultural phenomenon and it's impacted the world in, in so many ways. And I, I don't think that's a grandiose statement. I really think that drag race has impacted the world in in a in a really big way um it may not be known by everyone like but you see it referenced in pop culture you see the way its influence on makeup and fashion and um being a part of that was just so thrilling it was so exciting to to get to be a part of the legacy that is drag race and a finalist at that as well. That's yeah. huge, Shane. Um, Shane, you talk about your experience on Drag Race maybe being a little bit less positive or at least the the experience that was reflected back in the edit as being a little bit less positive than the one that you'd had on the show. You did receive the villain edit for that show. How did that compare to the experience you had doing UK Celebrity Big Brother? Yeah, I think the thing with Drag Race is that in the filming of it, I had such a great time. It was such a glorious six weeks. And Bianca and Adora and Darian and myself and the whole, all of the girls, we just loved it so much. And then watching it unfold on television was a kind of different reality to what I had experienced. And it was almost the antithesis of what I had entered Drag Race and felt that it was the antithesis of what I actually did and like the feeling and the sentiment that I bought. And, um, and yeah, so I felt a bit jilted by that and I was a bit scared to re-enter the reality television arena. Uh, but I did on Celebrity Big Brother and that was 
I think that was different as well because Drag Race is six weeks of filming and it gets reduced down to 12, I don't know, 40-minute episodes. And Celebrity Big Brother, there is like an hour and a half of television every single day and they edit it happens in real time essentially like you know drag race is filmed 10 months before it goes to air and it's sort of all edited together whereas celebrity big brother is just like happening and and whatever is exciting or interesting in the house that day goes on television which you don't know about when you're in the house you 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 wonder what people are seeing but you don't have any idea there's no connection at all and then when i emerged from the house as the winner even then, I didn't actually know why I'd won. So I was like, oh, wow, that's really amazing that I won. But why did I win? <laughs> and as I watched it back afterwards, I saw, um, I think I won because a lot, of the, a lot of the conversations that I was having in the house really connected mm. with people. A lot of, um, I had, a, I had a, a bromance with a straight guy called Andrew Brady. I had an arch nemesis in the form of Anne Whittacombe, who was a conservative politician in 23 years of parliament, had voted against every single piece of pro-LGBT legislation that ever came before her. And rather than meeting her with fury, um, I met her with conversation Mm. and engaged her as much as I could in conversation because I thought I would rather try and be effective than be right. I could tell her why her views on um, marriage equality were wrong, but I could also have a conversation with her and hope that while I wouldn't change her views, probably Mm. um, that maybe other people watching at home and other people in the house might hear and understand things a bit more. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I feel like putting Courtney Act and UK conservative politician Anne Whittacombe in a house together was probably meant to be exclusive, but instead opened up this platform for representation and these really beautiful and profound level-headed conversations about queer identity. And maybe that speaks to you taking out the prize for Celebrity Big Brother. Let's go back to the start of your overseas journey, Shane. It kicked off in LA. Fittingly, we've chosen a song by Miley Cyrus to play on Out of the Box today. Tell me about this one. I've chosen a Miley Cyrus song, Welcome to the USA, because it feels true. Jumped off the plane at LAX with my wig and my cardigan. (laughs) Welcome to the land of fame excess. Am I going to fit in? On FBI Radio 94.5, it's a song you might not often hear on this station. It's Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus, chosen by Shane Jennings. Just for the record, this isn't one of my favourite songs. It's just a song that felt appropriate. I think it's very appropriate. (laughs) Although I do stand Miley. That was Miley Cyrus on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. The song, of course, Party in the USA, and the chooser of it was Shane Janik, a.k.a. Courtney Act, my guest on the show today. I'm just letting all the listeners know this wasn't my (laughs) choice. 
<laughs> I would pick this song. Maybe when I have my own episode, I'll pick it and I'll show you. Um, before we played that song, we were talking about this idea that, you know, in order to make it in Australia, you kind of have to make it overseas first. And we talked about the big successes that you've had overseas. I think it's pretty safe to say that in Australia, you have made it, particularly in the last couple of years. I want to talk about your solo show, Fluid, which was happening at the Darlinghurst Eternity Theatre Company in 2020. Tell me about that. Fluid was a show that I wrote and put together. It was the first time that I had written all the music for one of my live shows. I've written lots of music. I've released music. I've done lots of cabaret shows, but I was always reluctant to put original music into cabaret shows because I was like, oh, God, I don't want to bore people with my own music that they've never heard. I want to put lots of fun songs that will make them tap their feet and have a good time. And I'd always slip in one original, uh, you know, hoping to keep their attention. Um, And then I was at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival watching lots of different shows. Um, And I saw a show called Six. And it was all original music and and I I loved it all. And I I realized that um, I think if you're slipping pop songs that people know really well alongside songs that they don't know, then the songs that they don't know might feel a bit empty. But when I went to see Six, I just loved all the music and had a great time and it was a good story. And I saw that perhaps you could do that. You could just have a show of original songs. And um, I worked with a producer, Ian Masterson, in London. And I actually got to work with um, Lucy and Toby, who wrote Six, and and one of their writing partners, Zach. And we wrote a couple of songs for my show, Fluid. Um, and wrote, uh, yeah, an, an album of original music and all of the stories that went with it. And it really just explores um, the fluidity in my own life of my gender and sexuality. And I think in many ways that show was a precursor for this book because I dug up I think all of my cabaret shows are a precursor for this book um but I really kind of dug up a lot of those ideas for fluid but you know you've only got 90 minutes to tell those stories and I think the audiobook for this is over 10 hours so really go into depth um, <laughs> um and yeah I, I I'm looking forward to touring fluid again but obviously COVID restrictions have meant that I haven't been able to I've done it in Sydney mm. and Brisbane and Darwin and then yeah, COVID ground everything to a halt. So I hope to get out on the road again soon to do it around the place. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that one. And yeah, it's interesting that you talk about fluid as a precursor to the book. And this is me putting words in your mouth, but I feel like another precursor to that book and that comfort that you now have with your fluidity came with Dancing with the Stars. You were a runner up, but there was there was a moment very early on in the season, Shane, where you transform from Courtney to Shane throughout the dance and you know you end by taking off your eyelashes and you're almost naked what made you want to do that that episode I can't remember the theme for the episode but it was something about like everybody was to tell a personal story and I I remember the song Real Men by Joe Jackson which I had done in a cabaret show previously and I thought this could be a really interesting idea I wonder if it's possible to do a tango to this song and to somehow de-drag throughout the song um and we started i was in pink josh my partner was in blue and we were in sort of like a mirror frame mirroring each other's movements and it was a real breakthrough moment for me personally in the rehearsals kelly abbey the creative director who is amazing she was like well you i can see you're mirroring each other's movements but like who are you mirroring who is in the mirror and i started to tell her the story about trying to mirror masculinity trying to fit in and i just broke down and started 
sobbing and Kelly just held me as I cried and cried and cried and it was a real moment of catharsis for me um and yeah I, I was a bit I knew that it was a risk but it didn't feel like a dangerous risk I I you know I did explain to the executive producers several times just so you know in the course of this song, I'm going to start fully dressed as a woman and basically mm. finish naked on commercial mm. primetime television. And they were like, yeah, we know. And I was like, okay, I'm cool if you're cool. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a beautiful moment. I, I loved watching that and I'm so excited to see what the future holds for you, Shane. What can we expect from you moving forward? Well, we've got the book. That is consuming a lot of my time at the moment, which is very exciting. Um, I've got another season of One Plus One on the ABC coming next year. And I'm also doing a play with the Sydney Theatre Company at the Sydney Opera House, Blythe Spirit, uh, where I'll be playing the lead, the leading lady role, Elvira, um, in a straight play at the Sydney Opera House. It's so exciting. Well, yeah, I'll put the details to that one up on the programs page on fbiradio.com as well as a link to your book, Caught in the Act. So if you wanted any more information about Shane that we maybe haven't caught throughout this interview, that'll be the place to find it. Shane, thank you so much for joining me today on Out of the Box. It's been such a privilege having you here. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope you all enjoy reading Caught in the Act. What song would you like to finish things with? Oh, yes. I forgot about that part. <laughs> I'm going to choose a song that is from Fluid. Um, it's a song called One Tonight. It is the finale. It's the encore. Um, and it's just a celebration of, um, you know, if, you, if you're looking at the difference in me, then maybe you're looking at the wrong thing. Maybe we can all be one tonight. A little bit more of your voice to to close out the interview as well. This one is by Courtney Act. It's called One Tonight and you're listening to it right here on FBI Radio 94.5. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. If you did want to listen back, you can do it on the programs page on fbiradio.com where, of course, you'll find all of the information that we've talked about. You can also listen back via the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Big shout-outs to producer Emma Higgins for doing all the prep for this episode and stick around. Around. Lil Scott is right around the corner for lunch. Bye. But know that if you're-